Welcome to Oddly On Air, where we expand teaching and learning perspectives by connecting theory and practice through conversations with expert Westchester University faculty and members of the Office of Digital Learning and Innovation. And now, to our hosts. Welcome, dear listener, to another episode. My name is Dr. Tom Pantazis, and I am one of our co-hosts today. And joining me, we have... I'm Amber Grove. I'm one of the instructional designers in the Oddly Office. So Amber, I have a question for you. When you were a college student, did you attend large lectures? Did you have like really large classes that you participated in? I did. I did. A lot of the gen eds I felt like, not the English classes or like the writing intensive classes, but a lot of like my histories and social studies, a lot of those were were very large. And some of my math courses too just giant auditoriums. Do do you feel like they were super engaging and you rem- remembered a lot of stuff from them? No, they were the best sleeping classes. Because <laughs> <laughs> you just, you know, you just park yourself, you know, somewhere in the upper middle. Yep. But, you and know. you just check out. I, I have yeah. similar thoughts. I was thinking back on my undergrad of the large lecture settings, trying to be like, was there any class that I was large lecture that I feel like was really exciting and compelling and, I, nope. I remember like eating breakfast and trying not to fall asleep. So I think that uh, is a good setup here for our guest today. who's going to share with us some strategies about large lecture teaching. Joining us today is Assistant Professor of Communication and Media, Dr. Adam Rainier. Welcome, Adam. Hello. Thanks for having me. Very excited to have you on board. Adam is one of the few people I, here at Westchester I can say I've actually taught alongside. I kind of know what we're getting here. (laughs) In a large lecture, too. Yes, I know. First year experience. (laughs) Yeah. So, Adam, can you tell our audience just a little bit about yourself? Yeah. As you mentioned, I'm an assistant professor uh, in the communication and media department. This is my fourth year here at Westchester. My background is a little unique. I wanted to originally be a TV meteorologist before I got into the true social science and communication theory side of things. Um, So I always kind of have that dual perspective of physical science and social science together and try and bring that in a lot of my research, a lot of my teaching whenever possible, which helps in classes like first year experience where you're getting all kinds of majors, maybe a physical scientist, maybe a social scientist. So I really enjoy bringing that unique perspective to mostly social scientists uh, as much as possible. Um, So what makes you an expert in talking about teaching in large lecture settings? Yeah, a lot of my undergrad background was in large lecture settings. Uh, Maybe not so known to me when I started college. I came from a very, very, I shouldn't say very, very small school, but a relatively small school graduating class of somewhere between 125 to 150. So um, I was used to classroom sizes of 15 to 20 students. And so when I got to college, uh, I went to Rutgers University, which is a very large state school, tons of students, and primarily large lecture-based learning, especially in a lot of your earlier courses. I found this so interesting because I had some of the same perspectives that you guys discussed early on in the intro of, yeah, I, there were classes I could blow off and fall asleep in class and so on and so forth. But when those large lectures actually landed and the professor was engaging students and bringing you into the conversation and, and it just felt like you left that classroom with such a, a different positive experience and a different feeling that you'd leave even if a 20-person class went really, really, really well. It was something about that group collective and having 200 students or 300 students being captivated versus just 20 students at once being captivated. And I always found that so interesting. So when I got here to Westchester, 
uh, obviously the class sizes are a lot smaller uh, in most respects, but I still felt like there was a desire for some students to to take large lectures and they wanted to learn through that large lecture perspective. And I wanted to find a way to be able to bring some of the things that I think do work in large lecture settings, a lot of other institutions here to Westchester so that we can kind of contribute that space. Because I think, uh, you know, every type of class definitely can succeed in learning and delivery. And so I think we can certainly do that here at Westchester too. So take us through one of your typical large lecture settings from the student perspective. From the student perspective, yeah. Uh, pretty much every class I always try and start with like a recap and administration, you know, trying to get the stu- give the students the five minutes to get into the mentality of being in the classroom, whatever we are talking about as opposed to whatever the last class talked about or whatever they're doing previously before that. Um, and then from there, uh, I try and start with some kind of opening question or broader thought or something that will tie together uh the day the day's activities <laughs> so that's one of our theoretical connections there is nice. that idea of starting with a hook and it doesn't have to necessarily even be a question maybe it's just a statement that challenges them um, a lot of what i get to do in the media classes is bring in something going on in society so for example a couple of weeks ago in media and culture theory we had a lot of discussion about kanye west and the situation around that and um you know, it's it's relatable because, you know, they listen to Kanye West outside the classroom. It's obviously in every single, uh, you know, entertainment section of every major media organization right now. And so there is a lot of discussion to be had about it. But just starting there, even if it's not the best connection to what you're talking about today, making those loose connections and it just gets the juices going. Like they're going to be willing to talk and discuss media after that, even if it has nothing to do with Kanye West or whatever we opened with just by nature of starting with something that's going on in society. They're probably talking with their friends about it, their parents about, and just bringing it into the classroom and using it as that launch pad to get going for the day. Okay. So that's how you start it. What do you do to keep it going then? Yeah, from there... um, Most of the media classes, they do have some lecture component. So it's that balance of providing enough content, enough context, enough theory, enough backbone and structure and delivery of that like lecture, true lecture style delivery. And so I try, especially in a large lecture class, if we're thinking of a 50 minute class, for example, I try and keep that component at 15 to 20 minutes max. Um, and you hear a lot of discussion around how long can we keep our, our focus on a YouTube video and some kind of online video. And it usually maxes out at 10 minutes. Maybe if you're lucky, yeah, Tom's giving me six minutes, six minutes. And I was going to say eight was going to be my original guess. And I didn't want to come in too low. So like knowing that about, about somebody trying to manage all those distractions on their computer, I try and apply the same kind of context to the lecture hall. There's a million distractions going on, plus all of the computer distractions and phone distractions that they have. Knowing that, all right, I think 20 minutes is probably my max. It's still a good portion of that class period. It's, you know, 40% or something like that if we're breaking it down and still leaves us time to make some meaningful connections through discussion or activity or something fun at the end to kind of leave the class off with that perspective at the end. And maybe you you mix it up a little bit depending on what the topic is of the day and you do the activity or the discussion first and you leave off with the lecture or whatever. So you touched on another piece there where you kind of change up that pattern that you it sounds like you've established mm-hmm. um so you're a couple classes in or a couple weeks in and it's like we're just going to invert 
and you're still doing the same things, but that little change is another way to help capture attention and engagement and, and make folks kind of sit up and go like, what's going on here? And that was something I really struggle with because I'm somebody who follows a, a rigid format repeatedly. And so I wanted to, I was kind of coming in with the approach that maybe students want that same format week after week after week after week and they want to have lecture first and then know the activities next and so i think it works from a couple different respects it helps you learn in a different way it helps you take in material in a different style but it also keeps your students honest because they can't fall into uh, these same repeated patterns over and over and also you can't fall in those same repeated patterns. And that's probably when many of us start to cut our corners in uh, the work that we do or the lecture that we deliver or the grading when it's that repeated process over and over and over and we do it the same way every single week. I do think it helps both from the from the setup and the, perspe- the professor's standpoint, but also to keep the students honest as well. From what I heard from your description, Adam, was was three things that I've actually read in research as well. And so mm-hmm. it's interesting to hear how your actual practice, your experience is aligning with some of this research that I've read. So like the first thing is the whole idea that you need a hook, but you really talked about relevance. And that's always been super important to me. Like if you can't connect it with something that I care about, then mm-hmm. I just don't care. Mm-hmm. And um, the other thing was the switching gears about every 15 minutes. They, I, I've even read giving like conference presentations, um, you know, switching gears every 15 minutes mm-hmm. is a way to kind of keep your audience engaged. Um, and, and so then it follows them that that would work also with lecture. Yeah. And then also the idea of novelty, right? If we get stuck in our own patterns, then not only do we as, you know, instructors get stuck in those patterns, but then so do our students. And if we don't make it engaging, then they're going to find their own engagement somewhere else Mm -hmm. so i just think that's awesome that your practice is really aligning with the theory that we've got going on so in honor of those three theory points we have and and there we go (laughs) what are some of your favorite go-to teaching activities for large class settings yeah i think i think one that works really really well both from getting people to participate, but also ensuring that they are doing something when they break up into smaller groups is think, pair, share, or think, pair, and then doing some other kind of component. That's Um, another theoretical connection that uh, is pretty prevalent in the large lecture settings. mm -hmm. I feel like it's sometimes almost over prevalent. Mm -hmm. Um, Like that's the one that everyone kind of defaults to, but it's, it's fascinating. That's the first one you share. I think it says something to the effect of of that particular strategy. Yeah. So tell us more. Tell I us think more. we overassume how much students communicate with each other in a lecture hall. And so if we can take five or 10 minutes out of the class time and build that in the way we expect it to be happening outside of class time, but oh, by the way, it's also somewhat relevant to the material, even if it's not the most directly relevant conversation in the material we're having, it's somewhat loosely connected to the material. I think that's so beneficial. It's going to get them saying, okay, I've already spoken. I've already talked today. Now I can raise my hand when the faculty member, the professor asks a question. Um, And oh, also I'm connecting with this person next to me in class and discussing something educationally, but making that social connection, making that friendship, and then being able to do all those things we assume that students could do anyway. I'm really also getting more familiar and getting more comfortable with and figuring out more creative ways to use polling software in the classroom. Um, Another <laughs> theoretical connection. So before we jump on polling mm-hmm. software, I want to go back for yeah. a second to the think pair share and mm-hmm. just add one point of saying, I think it gives some comfort 
for students who might be less willing to to raise a mm-hmm. hand that they don't necessarily have to draw on their comment. Mm-hmm. They can draw on their partner's comment. Yes. Um, and so that's one of the things I just in general, when when knowing I'm preparing to ask students to share, I'm trying to make sure they've had an opportunity to be be in a position where mm-hmm. they can be the most comfortable. I'm glad you brought that up. All right, now let's go back <laughs> over to student response systems and your use of polling techniques. Yeah, go there, for it. there's so many different ways to ask the questions. Like it doesn't just have to be an A, B, C, D, E, multiple choice type question. Even fill in the blank doesn't have to be as boring. It's just writing a qualitative response. Like, you know, there are maps, there are charts that are being made on the fly. There are ways to quantify answers that haven't been able to be quantified before. It's so much different than um, the way the software was kind of designed and set up and thought if we think back to something like an eye clicker for example and it's just you're able to build in such an extra layer of interactivity just like we're seeing uh, on many of our pieces of social media for example like a, a facebook poll and a twitter poll and all of these things they're way more interactive nowadays than they ever used to be when they were first launched or first piloted on these platforms and so I think those two are really the the two main ones I like to incorporate in the classroom because they can give us um, both like that honest, qualitative piece of information that somebody could like rough draft out with their partner first before they then go and say it in front of 250 of their peers and you get some like validation as to am I – kind of on the right track or am I totally out in left field compared to what everybody else is thinking? And then also that ability to deliver something anonymously, but everybody delivering it anonymously at the same time or relatively anonymously at the same time. So you can say, okay, out of 100 or 200 or 350 responses, here is what 100 of you think or 200 of you think or 300 of you think. And we can identify both outliers or we can identify misconceptions really easy, but also identify a bulk of like is what I'm trying to teach landing. Well, and you have this opportunity too as a student where it's you're getting that, that engagement hook of like, did I get it right? Mm-hmm. And so there's this like anticipation that helps build some engagement there. Another thought I've had here is we've been talking and it kind of combines that think pan share and mm-hmm. uh, the student response system aptitude. You can put up a question up, ask students to respond to it through the polling software mm-hmm. and then turn to your neighbor and explain why you picked your answer. And so now you've engaged that think pair share piece and then then you can go to revealing the answer and they've had a chance to talk about it with somebody else and maybe they both had the same answer and that's affirming and then maybe you didn't and then there's an opportunity to explain well why did you pick that or what do you think so yeah if we think about the different ways people learn and knowing how people learn like we hear often about how explaining a concept to somebody else or teaching it to somebody else in your own words is such a strong way of learning to then recall the information that would seem to make a lot of sense on tricky concepts or concepts where piloting and tossing out there for the first time okay take this explain it back to your partner or the other person in your own words and then see if you've kind of both landed on the same thing or if you're you're still off in the way you're describing it and explaining it and so on okay. any other strategies that you you use in that large lecture setting or those, those two are, are your, your go-to yeah those two are my favorite particularly with technology i mean just generally trying to guide the discussion and create a like a favorable calm classroom environment like i want an environment where students aren't afraid to if they aren't understanding in that moment i can raise my hand right in that moment interrupt the flow of the lecture and say i'm going to ask this question now because i want to know the answer now and they don't feel like i have to wait till the end of class or i have to be one of those people that goes up in the line to wait for the professor and like if you're not getting it on the fly, there's no sense for us to move on because you're probably not going to get the next thing either because you probably need the last thing to move on. And so 
there's probably also 25 other students who feel the same way. And let's just pause and not have to feel like we're, we're stuck and forced to live up to the schedule. And that's more important than the students understanding the material because it's really the opposite way to think about it. I just want to jump in right here um, as somebody, as a student who had severe anxiety about speaking in class Mm -hmm. um, and speaking in front of my peers. I just want to say that I very much appreciate these strategies of like talking with each other before or, you know, kind of these check-ins, like these low stakes check-ins where like... I'm not being singled out. (laughs) This this brings comfort to my anxiety-ridden soul. Those small discussions, it was like I was getting so much more out of the class by talking with my peers, but then at the same time becoming more comfortable about talking about the material in the class, which is what I needed because I, at that time, I mean, now I'll talk in front of anybody, but at that point (laughs) in my life, I I really couldn't do that. Um, So that was very helpful for me. (laughs) You're going to ask a question in a large lecture setting. Mm Mm-hmm. How much wait time do you provide? Oh, I will go forever. I'll make it You'll as just, awkward as possible. You will be sitting <laughs> in the awkward silence. 100%. Okay. Because I think that's an important part to mm-hmm. keep in mind when you're thinking about doing some discussion in large lecture is that it, it's oh, you got to you got to live in that awkwardness mm-hmm. so that they're going to somebody's going to raise their hand at that point. Because as soon as they know that you will fill in the answer to that question, they're even more reluctant to mm-hmm. speak up. And they say, mm-hmm. well, if I just wait him out for five seconds, I know that he'll give us the answer to the question and not call on anybody else or not force it on anybody. And so why would I speak up in that first do, place? Do you feel that you have to wait longer in large lecture compared to a regular size classroom? No, I feel like it's the opposite. I usually feel like if you have a group of students who are reluctant to talk in those 20 25 person classrooms i don't know if it's just because you can see everybody better and you know who the person speaking is no matter what or whatever but um you will wait it out more i find in those classrooms interesting yeah kind of switching gears slightly um you've recently participated in our active learning initiative what motivated that participation like what were you taking away from that experience to help in your teaching yeah um I think I wanted a stronger like database and knowledge of what I can use in certain circumstances to create an active learning space or in a classroom where we're going to have interactivity and we're going to have discussion and we're going to have students participating and not be so lecture focused. So um, when I got here to Westchester and I saw and understood the value of active learning, interactivity, and how quickly the students will turn out, tune out to a lecture, a true, strict, 50-minute lecture-based class, um, I knew I was going to have to make some changes for it to kind of land and work. And you can only go so far with think pair share and students only want to turn to their partner and share so many times before they're like, all right, this is, this is repetitive and silly. So what else can we do? And that was kind of the main, the main idea behind why I wanted to participate in that initiative. (laughs) One of the things that I really took away from that active learning experience was your example from your journalism course, Mm, where that professor put up anonymous examples Mm -hmm. of student work Mm -hmm. and you critique them as a class. Yes. And as an active learning strategy that would work in a large lecture setting, Mm -hmm. I really thought that was just such a really powerful way to do it because the student, whoever's example is there is being like, oh my gosh, he's using my example. Mm -hmm. And they're getting lots of, they're certainly attuned. But if the other students are being asked to bring forth that criticism, they're practicing those skills. Mm -hmm. And then for that student to have the choice to either be like, yep, that was mine, Mm -hmm. or to to remain in (laughs) anonymity. Hopefully I got that right. I think that's just a really powerful example. And one that I think works across many different 
disciplines. So that was an Adam example that I just explained. <laughs> you know what's, but you know what's really interesting about that example is that I, the, I, I was probably guilty of this many times, but what would actually happen is students would forget whether or not they had written that piece because it was so close to what you had done that you were like, oh, that's mine. And the professor would go, actually, this isn't yours, but <laughs> – Tell us about what you did because it must have been similar to what this student who's on the board is doing. And so you would draw these connections and you would almost trick yourself into thinking, oh, yeah, mine, that's, that's mine, that's the good one, or that's mine, that's the bad one. And you'd be like, fine, I'm going to say, hey, this is mine, this is the bad one. And then you'd like kind of look like a fool in front of the class because it wouldn't be your paragraph that you literally wrote that's on the board. But you would draw that connection that, oh, I did something poorly as well, and I just put myself out there, so now I might as well explain it and defend myself mm-hmm. and go with it. And so, like, even if the actual student themselves was never willing to volunteer themselves, good or bad, other students would accidentally volunteer themselves, and you would still get to the same conversation mm-hmm. the faculty member or the professor wanted well, to make. And how great that is at pulling pulling mm-hmm. students into the conversation, yep. bringing them into the Tricking learning process. <laughs> yeah, no, really, in some respects, right? But then they're still making the same connections mm-hmm. because the same error happened or whatever, and you can say, oh, well, I see the connection now, and I can apply it to my paper, even though that wasn't mine on the board. Yeah, And so I think that speaks to the, that there's a decent number of active learning strategies that I think can definitely still be applied in a large lecture setting. Mm-hmm. And so let that be a plug for our future oh, yeah. active learning initiatives Absolutely, that um, folks can come for those to get some ideas that can work in those large lecture settings. Definitely. So. What advice do you have for faculty who might be teaching large lecture settings for the first time? I think the biggest piece of advice I would give is find ways to diversify your content. Um, if you can diversify that, like many times a survey course is going to be a course that can be taught in an interesting manner because if you're you're covering an entire field or an entire domain, there has to be something that's relatively interesting about that domain or probably really wouldn't exist. So like what is that space that's super interesting of media or it's super relatable? So for example, in media, a lot of people like sports, and so sports media is going to be a section that people look for. Okay, how can we make this super interactive, super cool? Can we bring Rami to the classroom? Can we bring some athletes oh. from on campus? Can we, you know, can we find some really captivating, interesting video? Can we tie it in the Philadelphia sports? Like, there's so many ways that you can f- just kind of remove the educational aspect for just a second and just say, like, okay, how can I make it relatable? How can I tie it in? Something. I still think there's plenty of opportunities, though, within oh, the yeah. different disciplines. Like, you Certainly. are that kind content expert you're going to see what captures your attention in terms mm-hmm. of stories movies videos books whatever that's out there um that you can then bring in and use that and i, I would say too no don't be afraid to ask students to be the yeah. curators of some of that information what um, do you think is the most interesting aspect of this general chemistry or gem or this overview of this field or something like that yeah, yeah. i agree 100 percent. it gets to though at this that iteration piece that you've alluded to throughout some of this conversation Mm -hmm. of just constantly looking to get better at Mm -hmm. that. Like, what can I tweak? What can I change Mm -hmm. to continual improvement to just keep improving the teaching that I'm doing? Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's a really important piece of of being an educator. Uh, And I think it's an important piece when you're looking at large lecture settings too, just given some of the challenges of that environment that you're constantly looking at. How can I keep focusing on engagement and, making sure that students are walking away feeling like that was a productive use of their time. 
So uh, what's something that's bringing you joy these days, Dr. Rainier? I'm, a, I'm actually a cold weather fan. I do like the cold weather, even though most people don't. I'm a big snow person, so I enjoy the snow. So I, I holidays, but also the cold weather, just kind of getting going is not that bad. Everyone else is miserable about it, but I actually you, don't mind You enjoy it. it. Yeah. Right. I, don't, I mean, I don't want it to be like negative 40, but. Um, it doesn't, I don't no, think that happens here not, in Westchester. Not often, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Amber, do you have something that is bringing you joy these days? Cold weather. Uh, it was yesterday. We, even though it was windy and cold, we uh, we played outside for a little bit after my kids were done school, and we all came in and I made hot chocolate. And man, hot chocolate brings me some joy, y'all. Yeah, it's delicious. My wife would <laughs> agree with that. in it. It was. It's like one of those small, small joys. Mm-hmm. Hot chocolate after being cold. I'm going to go the opposite. I really enjoy a good fire. Um, we're recording this during the holiday season. And so when I am in my family room with the decorated tree, lights on, fire going, and everyone else is in bed, that is pure joy for me. That's a good one. I don't care about everybody else being in bed, but I do like the lights, the fire, the, the yep. like setting. Yeah. yeah. Amber, let's summarize real quick here. Dr. Rainier starts his large lectures with a recap and some administrative topics before he introduces some sort of opening question or broader thought that is trying to hook students into the class. And he also keeps his lecture to a short segment of around 15 minutes. Then he'll utilize some sort of activity such as think, pair, share or think, pair, do or even a student response system type activity. He touched on the importance of providing students with informal speaking opportunities to build confidence. Adam also mixed up the order of activities as he went throughout the semester to maintain engagement via novelty. And Adam reminds us to live in the awkward silence after asking a question in a large lecture. I shared Adam's story of using anonymous examples of student work for analysis in class. And his advice to other instructors is to work on diversifying what happens in each class and to look for ways to make the content as relatable as possible through a process of continual improvement. Thank you, Dr. Rainier, for joining us today and sharing some of your very practical experience with large lecture settings. Uh, So thanks for being here. No problem. And thank you, listener. We always appreciate you joining us. And if you are a listener who has some interest in being a future guest, Or if you have some suggestions for a future topic or something we might change up or do differently, we would always love to hear from you. So please email us at distanced at wcupa.edu. Stay odd.